In researching this episode, I was looking up quotes on money and happiness, and the best one I found was they say money doesn't buy happiness, but everyone wants to prove it for themselves. Now, property investment and wealth are often used in the same sentence, but what is wealth? Obviously, it means different things to different people. Do we pursue wealth as an end in itself or for what it can buy us? And how much is enough? Uh, well, to me, property, its great advantage is its leverage. So if you've got some surplus cash flow and ability to service debt, then, then property really to me, it suits really nicely. If I've got a lump of cash, yeah, look, I, personally, I would go a share portfolio. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as Download our free full or forecast report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au When I'm talking to clients about property investment, I'm thinking about the options that they'll have available to them in 10, 20, 30 years' time if they make good decisions today. Freedom, choice and independence are all words that are frequently used in these conversations. Today's guest is Paul Benson, financial planner and author of Financial Autonomy. And we're going to explore exactly what that means and the role property investment can play in the creation of it. Welcome, Paul. Hey, thanks, Veronica. Thanks for inviting me on. Hey, Paul. Thanks for coming on, mate. I guess um, financial autonomy, I do like that uh, those words together. Um, can you explain how it's a bit different to say, financial freedom. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Chris. So, uh, so I'm a financial planner and I guess therefore I've, I've been dealing with clients for, for a number of years and, and it came about through an observation that what people generally were seeking was choice and freedom or, or flexibility, you know, so it might be choice around, right, well, when I retire, uh, but it could be choice around working hours or other, other things in their life. Um, particularly in financial planning, often a starting point is, okay, what age do you want to retire? And very often people, they sort of wouldn't quite know, all right, well, I want to retire at 60, but often they get to 60 and then, oh, I'm still enjoying work. I want to keep going. So the really correct answer was what I want is the choice, the ability to retire at 60 or whatever age, um, but actually I'll decide at the time. So, so choice is really what we're seeking. And I guess therefore sort of working back from that, that idea of financial autonomy around gaining choice. So it's not, I guess, financial independence is another common term that comes up, but financial independence implies that you've got all this, these assets, perhaps property assets, for instance, that are throwing off a whole lot of rent and therefore you don't even need to get out of bed. All your needs are covered in a financial independence type model. Well, that's not the reality for most people. I mean, that's a really high bar to achieve for one. Uh, and most people enjoy their work and they like to have something meaningful to do. So so rather than setting that as a bar, which is unrealistic and, and maybe not what people want anyway, the financial autonomy uh, objective is more around that, how can we have choice in our life? Uh, and that seems to align better with my experience of what people are seeking and conveniently is a bit more achievable too. It's interesting you say that around the financial independence. Um, I'm actually in the same camp as you. I look at it exactly the same. I think one of my frustrations with this whole FIRE movement 
And we are going to have a, a fire expert, you know, financial independence, retire early is what that kind of stands for. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of saying we need to get out of work. Work's a bad thing. We don't need to, you know, we shouldn't aspire to work. We need to get independent so we can stop working. Um, and I just don't think that that's, you know, part of the well-being. It's, it's enough to be fulfilled. I feel like we need something, a purpose and a drive. And, uh, and if you can put that energy into work, there's a lot of benefits for your sort of happiness. So I think that's the other thing with that, that your other conversation about people wanting to retire. It's like, okay, so what you get to 60, what do you do with your 40 or 60 hours a week that you spend at work? What are you going to do? And they kind of go blank. Um, and all the research is there that, you know, that transition is actually really difficult for people, whether it's sports people going from, you know, high intensity to not working, people retiring in professional jobs to not working. It's, it's really a hard transition unless you think about it a bit differently. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and yeah, look, I think you're dead right. I mean, it's the objective surely is to find work that you find interesting and engaging and that you enjoy rather than, to me, than, than retiring early. It just seems a bit of a wasted opportunity, a wasted life. So I guess that's, mm. that's one of the issues, isn't it? That if you're chasing money and work's going to get you there, then you may be chasing a job or a profession that you don't really like. It's not your passion. And so therefore it mm. becomes a real chore. And then that then leads into this idea of I want to get out of that. I want to retire. I want freedom. As opposed to maybe the freedom is, well, I could actually work in something that doesn't pay me as much if I've actually utilised the big earning or the capacity I've had early on in my life to actually create that freedom for myself. So their work takes a different meaning, right? Because I think what happens is this is quite a bit of a trap, this idea about, you know, retiring early can can lure people into an absolute trap. And I've seen it in the property industry time and time again is the idea of income replacement. And it's like mm. property has income replacement. And it's like, and that just forces people really into a situation where often they're buying really shit assets or they're renovating to, you know, supposedly give themselves a job, but they don't really know what they're doing. They overcapitalize or they undercapitalize or, you know, they're just living out this silly, silly dream. And then that becomes a chore in itself. But, you know, so do you find that people in like say in your client base, do you find that they then can rethink what they do? I mean, do you have any, any stories to tell us about people that have sort of come in doing one thing and then had the ability and the freedom to do something quite different? Um, a lot of the work we seem to end up um, working or areas that we seem to work working with clients is often around financial modelling. So they might have an idea around look what I'd like to do, for instance, had a really good one where some clients, they were starting a family and the, the husband, uh, he had played professional tennis for a little while, like he never got really high up, but nevertheless had that experience and so could be a tennis coach. But it doesn't earn a lot of money, right? So therefore, you know, he'd gone to uni, become an engineer, done all that sort of stuff. But now they were looking at, all right, well, we're going to start a family and what he would like to do whilst at this point they only had one child, but the intention was to have another, whilst the kids were sort of primary school age to do tennis coaching, right? Because that would give him more time to be able to help out with the kids and, and be involved. Uh, and, and it was, you know, just less stressful and it, it looked like that would work nicely for the, for the family but it meant considerably less income than he was on in his current role. So a lot of the work that we were doing was, well, all right, how can we make that work? And, and a key element of that was, well, all right, it might mean that you need to work a little bit later into life. Uh, are you yeah. comfortable with that? 
and, and they were. And we just had to quantify that and just show them, well, here's the impact of having lesser income in your, in your mid-30s to mid-40s is that, you know, maybe retirement at 60 is not so viable, but if you're happy to work on until 70, you end up in a very strong position. Uh, and they were, they were totally on board with that and great, let's move forward, you know. So, so that's really good sort of stuff that I enjoy working with people on. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that one where, um, you know, they want to step away from a career uh, and, and, and pivot into something else, like leaping into a different profession. Um, it's hard because, you know, a lot of people go in there with, you know, the rose-coloured glasses, I'm going to start a business, and in three or four years' time I'm going to replace my income or um, et cetera, and then it doesn't work, you know, and then they want to get back into what they do before and you've got a gap of three or four years and you Maybe it's in different industries. You're seen as the, you're out of touch. Um, but I think it's how do you deal with that sort of fear of, of stepping away from something you've worked on? It's interesting that though, Chris, because I actually reckon the risk of having a crack at self-employment is less than people think. Like as an employer, mm. I've employed people who have been uh-huh. self-employed and I reckon it's great to employ people who have had that experience because yeah. They don't feel as entitled. They know it's hard being self-employed and that there's not just this open checkbook and we can just spend money. So I actually find people that have been self-employed and then become an employee to be the best employees. Uh, oh, and I think mm. yeah, I on oh. some great <laughs> And so I actually think having a crack at self-employment is, it feels really daunting. And obviously there's an issue there about financial runway and some of those kind of considerations. But sometimes I think it's made out to be more risky than it really is. Well, what you're saying, though, there is that the crack at self-employment is really good for their future employer after they've failed. Well, true, but only if they've failed. I guess, you know, if it goes well, then they're kicking along, aren't they? But I guess just from a risk point of view, the downside, yeah. if it doesn't work out, it's maybe not as disastrous as, as maybe people might think. It's actually true. I mean, I um, I had a, a cafe years and years and years and years ago and um, it didn't do very well and I had to bail out and had some debts and et cetera, et cetera. That's actually what led me to get into real estate was because I thought, right, well, I'm interested in real estate. I've got certain skills, sales skills and so on and I, and I need to make some money because I've got to pay some debts. Um, I can't flap about sort of pursuing some ephemeral dream any longer. And I accidentally got into my passion. I didn't even realize it was going to be a passion or a gift until mm. I got there. I went, oh, my God, I'm born for this. But, and, I, and I worked for that, that, um, that uh, real estate agency for six years until I had my daughter. And, and that whole time I was very, very conscious of what a good employee I was. Um, maybe they might argue. Actually, they were going to go on business with you, so they won't argue. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm still opinionated. I still got still a, a challenging person to have around in a good way. I say, but but the thing was that I recognised the challenges of small business, and I also yeah. didn't think it was easy, and therefore I was less likely to be going. Oh, you guys are just idiots. You know, you don't know what you're doing, and I do a better job. Mm. And oh, you should, you know, like it's not fair that you're getting your cut and I'm only getting this cut. Like mm-hmm. I, I didn't have any of that sort of dialogue in my own brain. Um, I was really, really thankful for the the support and the and the setup and everything. I really wish I had more employee. You know, over my time, my current staff are fantastic, but I really, mm. really do wish that I had more people work for me over the years that have been like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you say, Veronica, that you started and you found your gift or your calling straight away. I feel a lot of other people they don't ever want to commit because really true purpose comes from mastery, right? Like once you truly believe in your own ability and that you 
uh, are helping on a deeper level rather than just doing a job. Um, but that doesn't happen overnight. You've got to actually do the hard yards over many years. Um, and that's where I feel like a lot of people, they get to that point and they're like, oh, you know, and, and they don't really push themselves to that sort of next level and they go and look for another solution and then they have four or five career changes and never actually make it to that sort of next level. But it's, uh, it's, it's two sides. Some people you find on day one, but you've actually sometimes got to keep on pushing through. Chris, I wonder sometimes if that's... Sorry, I just Sorry, to try, you know, I have had six careers. <laughs> yeah, well done. <laughs> so number six was it. And everything was actually... a stepping stone to get there, really, when I think nothing was wasted in terms of getting me to that direct, that, that everything was sort of headed yeah. in that direction. Um, yeah, and, and millennials, they say millennials now on average have six careers, exactly. But, yeah, there's this chopping and changing because you're in the wrong one or you, you pull out too early versus actually that persistence towards mastery. So I wouldn't, I'm not going to claim that I had any great design in my personal career, but um, there's, it's two sides of the same coin really, isn't it, a bit of a challenge. So, sorry, I cut you off there, Paul. I was just going to say... As someone who mentioned to Chris earlier, my son's in year 12 and so he's just about to finish high school and so obviously there's a fair bit of, right, what are we going to do next year and, and study and these sort of things. And mm. and so you reflect on your own experience. I think there's a lot of you don't know what you don't know. I mean, when I was in high school, like I love financial planning, but when I was in high school, I had no idea that that even existed and, mm. and probably it didn't exist to a great extent at that point mm. either. Um, so so that evolution and, and I mean six different careers Veronica that's awesome but and as you say you learn as you went along maybe some of it is just we just need the, that experience you just need to get in there roll the sleeves up and, and learn and then find oh this is what I enjoy I don't enjoy that so much I mean I, I did a degree and then got into a role that I would have thought was perfect it was essentially an analyst type role looking at spreadsheets all day and I did it for six months and realized hang on this is not for me, you know, <laughs> but it was theoretically my ideal job. That was what I'd studied for and that was what I wanted to get into. Mm. But until you do it, who's to know? Yeah, I think sometimes it's the environment, right, or the, the company you work for, the culture, um, your personal, you know, lifestyle needs, um, you know, are potentially higher or smaller at different points of your life, right, and, you know, and you just can be spinning too many plates. And, you know, I've seen a lot of some clients that just swapping companies or just taking that day off a week for you know a few months uh, or going on a break um, just to reignite. People just get burnt out right as well. So you know, but employment and that your to how you view that long term does lead a lot into property investment. Whether you want to buy a home or whether you want to buy an investment, because mm. um, you've got to have that confidence there to take on a mortgage to uh, you know to buy that investment property to put more money into super etc. So. It is a really important discussion to sort of help people get direction because um, that kind of income will then lead to savings. Savings leads into what you can invest. Um, you've got to get that first ingredient right. The other um, element there I'd suggest too, just sort of tying those two together, is for someone who wants to pursue self-employment, if they've, say, bought even just their home, then it might be that the equity in their home is the way that it, it facilitates either the runway or if they're buying another business or they've got capital expenditure to set that up. So having gotten into the property market and building yourself up some equity gives you that firepower that you need, gives you that financial backing to be able to do other things. Uh, and so, yeah, getting into the market, I think is really important there too, to give you that choice if that's something that you're ever going to be interested in. 
It's another double-edged sword, though, isn't it? Because you think about, I know that a lot of employers say, oh, I, want my, I want my employees to, you know, have kids and have a mortgage because then they have to work, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it, it can be a trap. You know, the, 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 what you are able to achieve because you're on a good income can then actually lock you in to that mm. income and to that, that job. So it's, it's, I think that I, I certainly think that um, an openness to, um, you know, to learning and compounding your learning, you know, the, the, the beauty of compounding, the magic of compounding or what it can do when you buy a good asset over time and obviously compounding your learning and applying that in different, different environments um, can help. But, um, you know, I guess all of this is risk though, isn't it? I mean, you know, so you're modelling out what people can, you know, what their life might look like in, when they're 60 or 70 based on the decisions that they can say you know make today and of course in that there's a whole bunch of assumptions right you've got to actually plug in figures in order for this to work and I always you know some of these modeling particularly around property and I and I'm always fascinated to go oh I love it that's seven percent annual you know, growth and and you know where did that come from oh it's you know and and some planners they'll justify plugging these numbers in and I'm like there's no guarantee of that and you haven't even spoken about the quality of the asset in the first place. I mean, you know, a good asset might do that, but a shit asset sure as hell won't. Um, do you know what I mean? It's so, so how do you – it's all well and good to model this stuff, but it's still a bit mm. high in the sky, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I guess your starting point is you try and be conservative with your assumptions, but the other way is that typically we, we model multiple scenarios. So we'll model, right, here's the scenario. If your assets grew at 3%, here is it at 5%, here is it at 7%. So you, you generally have multiple scenarios what and you, you, try and, you try and be conservative. Yeah. They don't grow or they go backwards. Well, I guess typically you're modelling 10, 20 years so there would be an expectation over the longer term that your asset mm. is going to grow. Um, and particularly, you know, you, often for the stuff we're doing, it's not exclusively property. So there'll be, porf, you know, share portfolio, superannuation, that sort of stuff, which tend to be more diversified and therefore is a bit more predictable outcome. But I guess, as mm. I say, the starting point, be conservative, right? Yeah, you're right. Modelling's a funny thing. I, um, being a planner for a long time, it's a, how you build any plan, right? You figure out their goals, you figure out what their cash flow, you look at their assets, you put it into different buckets, different strategies, and then it spits out what's potentially the optimal sort of option for them. But Veronica's bang on. You know, a lot, there's so many assumptions there around interest rates, around growth rates, inflation, um, you know, what you need to live, uh, when you're going to retire, et cetera. Mm. Um, so I think a lot of that conversation comes back to simplifying it and actually go, what are the trade-offs? Like, got two options. I can pay my mortgage off faster or I can put more money into super uh, or I can put more money into super or buy an investment property, et cetera. And then, then you start to get some real tangible sort of what's potentially the best next move for someone. Um, what are some of the trade-offs you find that your clients uh, really struggle with or, you know, get the best benefits from? <sighs> I mean, I guess at the, at the foundation, it's lifestyle expenditure versus paying down debt typically, or sometimes mm. the lifestyle expenditure creates the debt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, yep. Credit cards or loans for cars and, and then these sort of things. So that's, that's probably the most obvious um, trade-off. But then, yeah, you do get, uh, should I be investing or should I focus on paying off the mortgage? Sometimes, depending on someone's age, should I be investing or salary sacrificing to super, for instance, you might get sometimes. Mm. Uh, but probably pay down the mortgage or invest is the one that I suggest 
beyond just basic cash flow, spending too much and racking mm. up your credit card. But if you pass that point, yeah, pay off the mortgage or invest is the most common one. And that, my feeling, I'd be interested to get your guys' thoughts, but my feeling is the thinking on that's kind of changed. I mean, mm. in days gone by, I would have said pay off the mortgage because mm. you've got a guaranteed outcome there. You know you've saved your 6 or 7%, whereas if we invest, we don't know what you're going to get. But at the moment, with interest rates at two and a half percent or something, that becomes a much tougher argument to make. You know, yeah, because um, guaranteed returns two and a half percent as opposed yeah, to guaranteed yeah. return at five or six. Absolutely, it's uh, it's much more challenging, and that, and does encourage people to make, take more risk, right? Hmm. Yep. Yeah, sure. And also, where rates are going, so there's forward guidance as well. So. You know, if you thought that rates are two and a half percent now, but they were going to be four and a half percent in three years, you would be much more conservative in your thinking, right? So, but if you go, oh, it's two and a half percent, and I can lock that in for five years at two and a half percent, which you can, um, mm. that it's kind of where rates are going is what drives mm. a lot of behaviour. And um, so, I mean, what that is encouraging, I believe, right now, is it in, is encouraging people who are putting off that home upgrade um, to going, well, you know, we can actually afford it, we can get a, a you know, higher, higher mortgage, it's only going to be 2.5%. So are you seeing much people wanting to do home upgrades and how do you deal with that sort of dilemma? Look, I haven't seen much of that yet. And in part, I'm in Melbourne and we're still in lockdown, so that probably contributes to that. Um, so, yeah, as I say, I haven't seen any ex- examples of that yet, but I guess just broadly, I mean, interest rates are particularly low now, but really they've been low for probably the last couple of years. Mm. Um, extreme right at this moment but they've been low nevertheless um and so yeah i think there is a bit more uh appetite for investment uh be that property uh, or shares and it's not i guess particularly thinking about the property market it's not hard to see if you do the numbers you know, and, and think about the rental yield to, to see transactions where uh, you can buy a property and where the rental income is enough to cover the cost of holding the property uh and although rents are going down quite a lot in good areas <laughs> so okay. it's like it's not be harder to make work you reckon yeah yeah i mean it's great to see you know yes in an in if covid hadn't hit for instance it might be that that would be an argument that might work but now that covid's mm. hit and uh rental yields have taken them you know i guess and it, we're hearing lots of different sort of um Stories and a lot of it comes from property managers who are, who are talking about individual properties that you know were leased at X and and then subsequently leased at Y, uh, and also the fact that tenants can actually start shopping around now and saying, well, actually, I can I can, for the same rent I can get more, or or I can renegotiate this one and actually pay less. And I, I've certainly had that happen on one of my properties. Um, mm-hmm. So you sort of, as a land, landlord, you've got to sort of weigh it up. Well, what's going to cost me to lose that tenant and what's the likelihood of me getting that rent again? So I'm like, yeah, mm. I'll do the deal. So that's an interesting it. balance, isn't it? Because mm. Chris has said the outlook on interest rates is pretty stable and low, mm. which is nice, but the outlook on rental yield, you're saying, Veronica, is, is trending down. So, and look, and the conversation I have with my clients around that is that you've got to have the cash flow to support a good asset. You, you cannot be buying for yield because it's shit. You know, down the track, maybe you want to live off it, but there's going to be a massive asset, you know, tied up to give you that yield. Um, mm. But the yield is more than just rental yield with property. It's And this is that you don't often get that, that one index, which is the capital growth and the yield combined. Is there such a thing? Don't know. I haven't seen it. 
Well, it needs to be discussed. I call it a return on investment. In fact, in your book, you've got a property, you've got a chapter on property, and, and yeah. you allude to this actually um, about the really the return on investment is how much cash you're putting into it uh, versus how much you're borrowing and what return mm. you're getting on that. Now, you, you, you allude to that in terms of capital growth, and I think about it in terms of actual cash flow. So you think every year I'm going to tip in X amount of money to support holding this asset and then I have yep. to look at what the growth is you know and the actual income that I've that I've um that I've got from that plus the actual growth and obviously that's a very difficult thing to measure with property and then you think okay what's the return on that money that I've tipped into that investment in that year and that that's something yep. that I think people are not looking at their properties and assessing them that way um and instead what they say and you allude to this also in your chapter is that they say I've made really good money in property and it's like because I bought it for a million and I sold it for one point yeah. And they go, I made half a million dollars. And you go, well, actually, how, A, have you taken out all your costs? And B, did you ever compare what else you could have done with that money over that same period of time, whether yeah. that's actually a good return or a shit return? Um, and this is the, the benchmarking is doesn't happen with property. It's a challenge, you know, because it, you, it needs a, a level of, you know, financial agility, a mental agility to actually get there. And whilst I've got the smarts to think about this stuff, I don't have the models for it. You know, maybe yeah. we need to combine and actually create one. I think the benchmarking too, I don't think it's it's not alone in property either. I mean, if you're doing a share portfolio and you say, okay, what we should do is sell this and buy this, really is someone going to go back three years later and say, well, what if I didn't do that and what if I had held that one? Because then yeah. you're like, oh, well, I made the wrong call and no one wants to feel that they've made the wrong call, you know. So, yeah, that, you're right. It's, it's, it's a challenge for sure. But the risk with property yeah. is so much greater. True, because of the, the transaction size, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, the, the borrowing as well. But that's a part of be, being a good advisor, though, Paul, is that you you encourage people to think about opportunity cost and to rewind on their decisions. It's never to say judgment, to say you should have done this and you could have had this much money, et cetera. But sometimes people have got overconfidence bias and you're right, they don't want to go back in time because they, they would, you know, it makes them it pain. It's painful. It's loss aversion. It's like it's actually mm. not a great feeling. But if you can do it in a good way, um, then they can kind of go, actually, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't have bought that sort of $300,000 property in southeast Queensland that's done nothing for 15 years. Or, you know what, and if I didn't buy that, I could have bought, you know, an apartment in Sydney that, you know, it's done this. You know what I mean? Like this, that's, it's painful to see, but that's some, sometimes the best way people learn, I, I think, is you, yeah. you go back and you actually say, well, this is the different road you could have gone on. Now, going forward, let's not make those same mistakes again. Um, and let's look at some better options. I, I think it's a the role of a good advisor to to talk through those um you know those past experiences. I guess very true. I guess maybe the other side to that coin is the alternative is people could you, you get your analysis paralysis, right? It's like, well, I could do this or I could do that or I could do that, and oh my god, it's too overwhelming. I'll do nothing. <laughs> and you don't want that yeah. either. So um, yeah, yeah. got to be a balanced structure. I've had those clients as well. Uh, you know, Veronica was talking about spreadsheets. There, I've got a, uh, you know, as soon as I said that, a, a very, you know, a client has been with me a long time, and the CFO, uh, he struggles with analysis paralysis more than anyone I ever know. Um, and he always wants to throw it back to the spreadsheet. Um, yeah. And I, like you, I was explaining to him for many years, even though he's a CFO, like he understands this stuff, he can't grasp what you were talking about, Veronica, is in terms of what you're actually investing into property is your negative cash flow per year mm. um, and, and your borrowing capacity because that's yeah. another opportunity. Yeah, yeah, and, so, yeah, and so if your negative cash flow is, say, $1,000 a month, so $12,000 a year, 
um, you've got to say, I'm going to afford that negative cash flow for maybe five to 10 years before it gets anywhere near um, the rents rises have um, got anywhere near to cover all your costs. And that's just being conservative. So you're really saying to yourself, I'm going to invest $1,000 a month for 10 years. Um, and, uh, you know, and then what that 120 grand is going to get me is the growth on that property, which, um, you know, if you buy you, for 120 grand, you might get a, a million dollar property, let's say a thousand bucks a month, negative cash flow. So you're investing 120 to get the growth on a million property dollar property over 10 years. But the, the thing where people sometimes forget is that in 10 years time, the rent's gone up enough to now cover all yeah. your costs. So you're not having to put in a thousand bucks a month anymore. Um, you might be making a couple hundred dollars a month now, but nothing, nothing that, that's a lot of money. Um, and then you've got this property growing for another 10 years and then another 10 years. And that's where all the rewards come. I think people want to best for five years and go, oh, well, what am I going to make in five years time? Well, probably not much. Um, what are you going to make in 30? Well, you know, probably a lot more. So I think that's the, the big dilemma. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. When you're talking to people about buying property, what are some of the things that you're discussing with them? Because I guess, and I'm counting this question because I know you've written a, set, a chapter on property in your book mm. because you've got basically three ways in which people can achieve financial autonomy, right? And property is obviously one of them. A lot of property planners and property advisors um, tend to avoid talking about property. And I'd like to know, I guess, why you think that is the case and what conversations you have with your clients around property. Well, why that is the case, and Chris hopefully will be able to verify this as well, but it's because <laughs> okay. of the background of financial planning, which is that most financial planners in days gone by were employees of product manufacturers, whether they're the banks, the AMPs, that sort of stuff. And so your role, your reason for existence was to sell your employer's products not really to give advice and no one makes any money recommending a client buy a property if you're employed by AMP or a bank or something like that. Yeah. So I know that's not the nicest thing to hear, but that's the reality, right? Oh. So that's, that's the background to where the financial planning profession, I mean, it is a profession now, but it hasn't always been. That's where it came from. And oh. so, mm. so that, that's the historic legacy of why planners traditionally haven't thought a lot about property. Now, that's changing in recent years, thankfully, uh, and more people are, um, yeah, more planners, I would hope. It's a fee-for-service arrangement and, and there's, you know, commissions are gone and these sort of things. So things have improved enormously and, and I think there's just been a little bit of lag in terms of, I guess, upskilling of planners to be able to talk about property. Um, to, to your question, Veronica, for me, so I certainly don't get into, hey, I think you should buy this property in Carlton. Like I don't get down to that granular level because I don't have that expertise. My focus is around cash flow primarily, right? Here's, if you borrow this, here's the expected cash flow. How's that going to play out? Can you afford it? What if you lost your job? What are we going to, how are we going to manage that, right? So cash flow is the mm. thing for me. Um, I, I guess from a broader um, educational piece and and, and uh, 
you know, how it's going to improve the client's position long-term, thinking about the impact of gearing, because that's really the great beauty of property investment is its ability to leverage yeah. and, the, and the impact that leverage has on your long-term position. So, so that's an education piece and making sure that clients understand this is why it might be relevant. Um, but first and foremost for us, it's really, look, financially, can you, can you make this stack up? Yeah, it's interesting. It's, you're bang on about the history of financial advice. You've got 20 years and uh, all built, it's all ending, which is good. You know, all the banks have sold off their, their advisors. The A&P advisors are all rushing for the door. Um, you know, there's been other transactions in the last couple of weeks that are sort of uh, simplifying the industry and, and taking out the product provider, giving the advice, which is definitely good. I think you're right, though. It is splintering a lot of advisors because a lot of advisors still want to run businesses and make money and um, they get to the property conversation and they're like, well, maybe I can make money recommending property. And uh, so when they, then they, cause we get phone calls, like we don't really ever get phone calls from buyers agents saying, yeah, can you refer us business? Cause they're kind of busy trying to hunt out and try to find scarce property and, you know, calling financial advisors isn't a good use of their time, but developers and off the plan and all these type of people have marketing teams that just sit there and ham, hammer brokers and hammer financial advisors. And, you know, the financial advisor gets a phone call. They don't really know much about property because they haven't been trained in it. And next thing you know, they've got a partnership with a developer and they're going, well, actually, oh, wow, I can make $50,000 off just referring this client down this route. And look at that negative cash flow there. Look at that. It's, it's, it's you know, it's positively geared because of depreciation. And um, so... And one of the things I'm doing is actually trying to get in there now is to, to get into the advisors and, and to try to stop them going down that route um, and to say, actually, you can be amazing at property. You just need to get to that. Cash flow is so important, which I think it's really good that you focus on that, especially if you're buying a home, upgrading or investing. But then it's just the next decision is actually making them get a good asset, making sure they know what they're doing there, um, which is it's a journey for advisors because they don't actually know what they don't know, I guess. Yeah, and part of that is just like the medical model, right? The GP doesn't go and do your X-rays or, or you know, give you advice on on a cancerous growth, right? Medical, but they refer out to the specialists, and it's to some extent it's about financial planners getting comfortable with, all right, I can do this and this and this, but what I need is a buyer's agent for this piece of the puzzle. Uh, you know, mortgage brokers, I guess, financial planners have worked with for a long time. It, it's so part of it yeah. is, is getting used to the the buyer's agent's role. Here's a question, okay. So with the medical analogy, if a doctor refers to a radiographer, for argument's sake, for an X-ray, does that doctor get a kickback from the radiographer? Does the radiographer go back to the doctor and go, here, I'm going to give you five bucks of every X-ray? Because (laughs) let me tell you, and this is something that is becoming a real bugbear of mine and it is in the, the buyer's agent space at the moment there is so much more of this, how can we make more money as the question that's being asked as opposed to how can we better serve our clients? Yep. And I'm about to get on a big bandwagon about this because it is is becoming rife in my industry. And, you know, when I first started, I used to get referred a lot of business by sales agents who genuinely wanted to help certain buyers or clients actually Mm. get looked after. And I, that source of um, referral for me is all but dried up. 
Um, it's absolute mm. trickle. And I, my, most of my referrals is actually through clients. You know, I have a huge yeah. amount of referrals from clients. But, but I do not get referred business from sales agents anymore. And it's because they're all in bed with each other. <laughs> all in bed with other buyers agents and sales agents and they go and they will sell. They basically go, right, well, I'll get 20% of that. Thanks. So I'm not going to refer to someone I know is good and will look after the client. I'm going to refer to someone who's going to give me 20%. And the disclosure, there's a bit of a loophole in disclosure in our industry to say that you don't really have to declare it. Because if I'm a sales agent and I'm dealing with you as a buyer, I don't have an agency agreement with you. So therefore, I don't have to sign a Section 47 disclosure to say that I've recommended someone to you that I get money from for recommending because I don't have an agency agreement with you. So, are you, Monica, are you saying that with financial planners? Because I would have thought for a financial planner to get any sort of kickback, I would have thought that's illegal. Now, I don't know about financial planners um, in terms of not declaring. I do know, as I said, there's a loophole with sales agents not having to disclose, right? Irrespective of not declaring, I just think that would be illegal. Financial planners can't receive those kind of commissions. Now, I just, so it's, it's interesting what Paul so um, I'm like Just jumping very quickly, it is. I don't know about financial planners, but it is happening with mortgage brokers. Interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. So. So a, a way around the system, it's pretty scary. So you can basically get yourself your own real estate license um, and the real, you refer to your real estate license, then the real uh, estate okay. license, I think, mm. yeah. um, it's very easy to get a real estate license. Um, you know, like a fucking like mortgage broker license, it's uh, a weekend course and 500 bucks and bang, well, all of a sudden your company. It's just changed in yeah. New South Wales, thank God. But yes, yeah. uh, up until March this year, it's been an open door for that. And, um, yeah. and, and that, but that comes back to that, doesn't it? How do we make more money is the question that's been asked, not how can we better serve our clients? Um, it's mortifying, but hopefully that door will it's, shut. Mm. Well, it's a, probably it's a good sign for you as a business, Veronica, that you're not getting referrals from agents because it's quite a conflicted um, relationship anyway. And to be honest, it's a sign to show that the agents won't be able to sell, you won't sell their stuff to their clients. You know, if they've got... You know, and you're going to go, well, that's a, let's look at this brief. Let's forget about that connection to that agent, but let's go to the whole market and let's yeah. not just buy the stuff that that agent refers to me um, because that's what easily you could, you know, an agent would want to have a buyer's agent that's trigger happy, that's happy to overpay, exactly that, right. thinks an eight out, that thinks an eight out of 10 property is good enough rather than, you know, not, no, we're not going to compromise on that road. We're not going to compromise on that building, you know, et cetera. And uh, you have to... So, you know, you're not a great partner for a real estate agent no, anyway, no. I don't think. Because, uh, <laughs> I yeah. say that they ring it's, us and they try to sort of encourage us to push certain property to our clients. I'm like, no, I won't buy on that no. way. No. That's, that's the opposite of the job. You're wasting your breath on me. But, you know, on LinkedIn, <laughs> you see this, and, and we'll get back to, to um, financial planning side of this in a minute, but you see it in LinkedIn a lot. You see the sales agent bragging about record price and blah, blah, aren't I good, aren't I good, I can sell this and get so much money for my client. You see the buyer's agent commenting on LinkedIn about the exact same deal, talking about how they got this bargain for their client. I'm sorry, those two things don't equal the same. They don't go together, you know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, no, it definitely does. So, I mean, I get a different tack um, I thought it was quite interesting when I was reading about you and I've, I've seen the, I've, I've got into this space. I haven't fully committed it when I was an advisor um, just because it was in its infancy and it was still sort of growing. But I know you've done a lot of work in the sort of responsible investing, sustainable investing, ethical investing. 
we haven't really done that over 150 episodes on the podcast. I can't remember another episode where we've really had a good chat about it. Um, what's your thoughts on all that space and how it's growing and, and, and why I guess people may want to consider it? It's really interesting. I mean, first, what, what got me interested, a, a friend of mine uh, owned a financial planning practice down in Tassie and called Taz Ethical, and he sort of switched me on to, hey, this isn't hippie stuff. If you look at the numbers, actually, the returns are better on the ethical investments because I must yeah. admit I was a bit sort of blinded to it. You know, this is greeny rubbish. But actually, he, he provided the numbers, and the more I looked into it, the more I recognised that actually investment-wise it makes a lot of sense. Um, and there's some really good logic. I mean, things like, for instance, a lot of ethical investments, they won't have um, tobacco companies, right? Yeah. Well, why would you want to invest in a business where you've got governments around the world actively marketing against you, irrespective yeah. of the harm that you do and the fact that your customers are dying? Just business-wise, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Wouldn't you rather be with a business, say, like CSL, where governments are actually buying your product and sponsoring you and trying to help you succeed, right? Mm. Um, and so... Generally, the um, applying sort of ethical, responsible type filters to investments, um, there's just some good underlying business logic as to why they're probably the companies that you're going to want to be interested in anyway. Mm. Um, so, so for me, first and foremost, it was just seeing the data and just saying, look, this makes sense, and then trying to understand, well, why does it make sense? Uh, and then I guess we've just embedded that into our process of, of when we engage with new clients, we have a, a risk profile type scenario that, that every financial planner would do. And then we have an extra step, which is around ethical considerations. And, and look, the majority of people are like, if it's legal, I'm fine. And that's, you know, that's totally fine, right? But it's good to have asked. People appreciate being asked. And there are increasingly, we find people who say, well, actually, yeah, I do have a few concerns. You know, I really, I don't want gambling exposure, for instance, is a hot topic at the moment. You know, a lot of people don't want anything to do with gambling. So, okay, mm. that's good to know. Thank you. You know, depending on what we're working on here, we can try and make sure that we don't have any exposure to gambling. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting area. And as I say, it, it, it's not, you're not compromising. You know, there's an expectation that it's a bit like organic fruit and vegetables, right? You've got to pay twice as much for it. And, you know, maybe it looks a bit crappy. But actually, <laughs> it, it, responsible ethical type investment, sometimes they cost a little more, but the performance is there. You're not compromising. It's funny, the first time I sort of encountered that was listening to one of the Motley Crew, the Motley Fool um, podcasts. And then I started doing some research into it a couple of years ago as well. And I've actually since invested in one fund and, and watching its, its uh, performance post the COVID lockdowns has mm. been really interesting, actually. It really has outperformed since because it, yeah. it hadn't, it, it, before then it was sort of, yeah, it was just sort of just doing its thing and I wasn't, I'm not too worried. I made a, a long-term decision and so I just was just checking in on it every now and then and it was just meandering and, but the difference is really marked now. But I'm interested in the sort of philosophical side of things is who determines what's ethical. And I, I, you know, I think that I'm very good at choosing what's ethical and I agree. I wouldn't want gambling in my portfolio. I certainly wouldn't want, um, and I don't really want a lot of big pharma in my portfolio either. And I certainly don't want tobacco and there's, there's, you know, then you want, you want businesses where they're actually got um, a diversity in their boards and, and there's a whole bunch of things, but who yeah. determines the, the criteria to make it ethical or not? Yeah, and that's where I guess as part of our questionnaire, we have a, a range of different issues and whether it's of high concern, some concern or no concern. And depending on where people lie there, either you could go, 
So we're getting a little bit off property here, but it, it would typically be related to share portfolios. So if they had a really high concern about a particular issue, then it might be that we need to construct the portfolio with individual stocks or maybe some, some ETF yeah. different sectors so that we can specifically exclude. But if their concern is a more just broad, uh, you know, global warming, greenhouse gas, for instance, yes. then you could t- typically go a fund manager and, you know, there are certain ones around that have good screening on that sort of stuff and, so, and then go with that fund manager. So it just depends on what the particular client's yeah. concerns are, but it's, it's totally legitimate, Veronica, and that was, to be honest, one of my original concerns is, you know, well, ethical, but whose ethics and, and how does that work? And, and it is tricky. Like, um, I don't know if it's still the case, but for a long time, Woolworths was the biggest owner of pokey machines in the country. Yeah, and people are, you know, well, can we, can we hold Woolworths? Because predominantly they're a supermarket chain, but they've got all this gambling exposure, you know? Um, mm. So, yeah. Oh, no. it, 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 if you ever watched the war on waste, you wouldn't want to own any shares in Woolworths. Right. I've only recently been watching that again. I yeah, um, haven't seen it. It's, it is an interesting discussion, though, because um, one of the challenges is how do you build that portfolio? And in the past, there was a limited number of options for the advisor to mm-hmm. to build a, a portfolio that was not just getting out tobacco, getting out gambling, getting out uh, coal sort of resource companies, etc. Um, but that's all negative screening. So we've got 100 companies. Mm-hmm. We'll take out 50 of them because we don't believe in terms of there, uh, but then you can go on things like you said, Veronica, you can do positive screens. So you could say, well, I actually want to wait more to companies that are investing in green technology, that have great diversity on board, that, um, you know, et cetera, have great uh, or a B corporation, for example. And so, mm. you know, you can go granular. It's just the difficulty there as an advisor, I'm sure, Paul, is to how to mm. build, maintain, constantly check that portfolio. There are companies that can allow you to do that, but, um, yeah, there, I think just now there is getting more options around this sustainable ethical investing for, for people. And I think, you know, fund managers are moving in that way. You can only see the biggest fund managers in the world are saying, look, we know that we have a huge impact on the way the, where the world goes um, because we control trillions of dollars. And so um, you're starting to see places like BlackRock, you know, say that no longer are we going to have this in our index portfolios. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting space. And for our listeners that uh, haven't really thought about it, I do encourage you to, just to start checking it out. And um, places like Australian Ethical is one company that you can learn a lot from. Mm, you've got well, a good website. Sure. In your, uh, just sort of segue back to property a little bit, in mm. your book you, you mentioned basically you make an interesting distinction between having a lump of cash, in which case you'd invest in shares, versus a monthly surplus, in which case you'd invest in property. So I'm a bit, I'm, I'm curious as to know why you wouldn't invest a lump of cash in property. Uh, well, to me, property, its great advantage is its leverage. So if you've got some surplus cash flow and ability to service debt, then, then property really, that's where it, it, to me, it suits really nicely. If I've got a lump of cash, yeah, look, I, personally, I would go a share portfolio. I guess I like the diversification, the fact that it can be international and, uh, and Australian. Uh, you know, it's, it's not single tenant issues, some of those type of things. And frankly, I'm not in the least bit handy or in any way fancy any degree of sort of property maintenance or getting, you know, I mean, I, I, I have a, a couple of investment properties, but, but I, yeah, I probably do have a slight comfort towards shares. So if I had a lump of cash, I would go that way. It's just effortless and it's working. But if I had, didn't have a lump of cash, but I had that surplus cash flow, then that would lend me towards, all right, let's do some gearing and let's find a property that's going to work. 
Because interesting. Oh, I understand. Great. I've got a, a number of clients at the moment. It's the sort of come out of the woodwork that actually have quite a lot of cash, and they're they're choosing to invest in property. And I'm I'm not necessarily saying that's right or wrong. And obviously, I'm not mm. privy guidance they've had that's led to that decision but but it is an interesting um time because i've never seen that many people come out of the woodwork to me saying i want i don't want to leverage (laughs) it's like it's yeah i'm thinking really you could buy 10 instead of buying you know two you could buy 10 um but that is an interesting element of the current low interest rate environment isn't it i mean if they leave it in cash they're penalized they're they're earning less than the rate of inflation so they've got to do something with the cash. And, yeah, exactly. whether it's property or shares, there's this push to not have it sitting in the bank. And I guess how much you have is whether they want to put, say, you know, if they've got a million dollars in cash, they go, oh, I'll buy a property, as opposed to a million dollars in cash, putting a million dollars in cash into the share market in one hit. And I, and obviously it'd be, you know, you'd want to stagger it, you want to do it, you want to get advice, mm. and, and it certainly wouldn't be that that simple. But whereas in property, it's whacking in one hit because you're buying one mm. asset. Yeah million for argument's sake but um but yeah it's quite i find that quite fascinating just in terms of those options and and the feeling that different people would get around those choices yeah it's a really interesting conversation because um you know who's going to have a lot of cash right so um you know if it's someone in their 20s 30s well that will probably help them with their house deposit really mm-hmm. um you know and you know unless they're I don't know, the old family money is a different story, right? But are you talking just a traditional, someone in their 20s, maybe they've got an inheritance of a couple hundred grand or something or they've had a big bonus or something. So a lot of that's not going to be a lot of cash. It's just going to help them buy the first home. The 30s, 40s, if they've got a lot of cash, I mean, they've, they've either probably paid off their mortgage and, you know, maybe sold a business or, you know, or, or sold investments or something. Um, and so, that, but generally they're, they're still a, a minority, the generally people with a lot of cash are that when you get to your 50s and 60s um, and that type of demographic, um, they're retiring, their wealth is accumulating. And that's where you've got to really start to think, is property the right move? Because they're getting to a point where actually it's now it's no more assets going into the bucket. We're now at drawdown phase and property is just a, such a lumpy asset. So you go and buy a million-dollar property and you go, look, I want 50 grand. Well, I can take only getting 30 grand a year of rent that's going to take me a long time to get my 50. So you've got to kind of, how do you sell a brick? Um, and so in retirement, you don't want to have lots of. If they don't need the income, right, they're doing it for capital preservation. Yes. Yeah, so this is, this is the next level. So if you got to the point where, uh, you know, financially there's never going to be, there's always going to be more than enough. Right. And so you're going to be able to live a great life in retirement, you know, give money to the kids, um, you know, not be worried about money and then you're going to have this portfolio of, you know, let's say it's 10, 15 million, then you might, you're right, Veronica, you might just say, well, this money, this property is going to pass on to the kids. I don't even need to sell it ever. I might just go down the property route. But most people, you know, are getting to that level. Um, And so they've got that fear in retirement that how long are you going to live? Like, you know, you wouldn't have thought you would live to 80, say 20 years ago, but now you're probably thinking I might live to 100. So, you know, that's a hard thing to plan for. Um, aged care, you know, health, et cetera. So, you know, generally you want to be more conservative in what you think you're going to need in retirement because you just don't know how long it's what's going to happen. Investment returns could all of a sudden plummet and your money doesn't go anywhere near as long as you thought. So it's an interesting one. I agree with Paul though. I'd probably lead to if I've got someone comes to me with 500 grand of cash, that's pure cash and they haven't got a home debt and they can't borrow money. Um, 
I'd probably go, well, let's just buy some shares, but I don't do financial advice anymore. So that's, that's probably. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So that wouldn't happen. Well, okay. (laughs) On that note, Paul, if you've got a property, don't go for us. Yeah, well, look, I hope this, this fits the category, but it actually, I, I had a discussion with a colleague earlier in the week and I thought this, as I say, I hope it doesn't offend anybody and I hope it fits the category, but we were just tossing around, and Chris touched on this earlier, off the plan properties. Oh. And, I, and I just sort of said to him as I was thinking about it, look, I, I've been sitting in front of clients for 20 years, right? And in, in all cases, you know, you talk about goals and then you go through personal balance sheets. So therefore you get to see, right, these are the assets inevitably, Yeah, this property assets. I said to him, you know, I can't think of a single investor who has done well out of buying a property off the plan. Can you? And the friend of mine who hasn't been in the industry quite as long, but still, he sort of, you know, rolled the eyes, looked up at the ceiling for a bit, and he said, no, I can't think of anyone either. (laughs) Like I could think of... I could think of someone who, you know, they bought something 10 years later, it was worth 20 grand more than what they paid for it. So they didn't lose, but really over 10 years, it was a rubbish result. I did lose. And and there must be people that do well out of off the plan, you know. I mean, it's not a great simple size, but I've been around a while and I I couldn't think of anyone who, you know, 10 years, say, and they doubled their money or something, really had a good result. We could put out a challenge. Have I offended you or (laughs) have I said the wrong thing? No way. No, I mean, no, that's, uh, you're singing to our hymn book on that one, but um, yeah. I think we should put out a challenge. <laughs> Who can actually come up with an example and substantiate it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And maybe so, there's not one. I don't know. No, there's definitely, um, so off the plan is a timing thing, right? So you need to basically buy something before anyone wants it, right? You need to get a good deal from the developer. You need to be buying pre-boom. Um, how do you get, and then you've also got to buy the best one in the block. So how does the developer gives you the, the one with the north facing aspect on the top level, um, you know, the bigger apartment that's finished well. Um, and, and that's all unknown. That's hard to get. And then you've got to hope for a boom. And then by the time that place finishes, um, you know, then there's potentially quite a lot of equity in it, but you know, it's like right place, right time, 99 times out of a hundred, uh, you're not going to be able to perfectly get the right one and you're not going to buy pre boom because you know, those, those things just don't always happen. They happen maybe, you know, three or four years in 10 years. And um, so they might do all right because they might say, well, I, didn't, I couldn't afford to buy a property, but I could afford to pay a deposit um, or buy an off the plan. And so you'd argue that, you know, that was probably one of their only options but, and it's paid off for them. So, and then a lot of people say that, oh, you know, that, but you're right. Um, what you said a really interesting point at the start. Being a financial planner, you get to talk people through their assets, their liabilities, and their history. And the amount of insights that you know you've got, you've been doing it for 20 odd years. I was there doing it for 13 years, let's say, and still do it every day now. You've just seen so many people. And so and you can so you think about it, you know, you might have seen, let's say hundred a year, that's over fifteen hundred, you know, that's two thousand people. Um, mm. and so uh, and then you've got all the other anecdotal stuff and all the learnings and all the reading and all that sort of stuff. So through 2,000 people you've seen, it probably is a lot more than that, um, but you still can't even think of someone. So that's pretty telling, isn't it, for a lot of our listeners? Yeah, I hope it's helpful. Oh, it's helpful, all right. And, um, you know, I spoke to a guy the other day. He rang me and he said, look, I'm sick of making dumb, dumb decisions with, you know, with property. And I'm like, so what do you mean? He said, oh, well, you know, I've lost, he said, I've worked it out. I think I've lost a million dollars because I bought 
of the plan properties. And, and so he's adding in opportunity cost. Um, but he's actually had real losses as well. And, you know, it's because he, he was, you know, I think maybe about 10 years ago, he was in a good earnings position and had this ability to borrow all this money and got sold a dream about, you know, for a cup of coffee a day, you two could be an investor. And, um, you know, I bought a number, and even with some quite reputable um, developers as well. So it wasn't like it's was all shonky stuff. This is, you know, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't matter really who's building it. it. If it's an investment, it really needs to give you a return. And um, if after 10 years you can sit down and work out that you've really lost a million dollars in real terms and opportunity cost, that's pretty shocking. Mm. Yeah, it's funny. This week, um, a mate here's a financial planner. So this is one of the other reasons why we stopped doing advice is a lot of advisors would refer us clients because they know they haven't got those property expertise. And so they would say, well, you know, who's, who can kind of give them great mortgage advice and then it has access to lots of buyers agents that they've worked with. And that's kind of our little niche. Anyway, this planner refers this to client. He says, look, he's a really close mate of mine. I'm really worried. He's going to buy this thing in Brisbane. Um, can you have a chat with him? And I was like, okay, yeah, no worries. Um, Yes, he's already got a broker, so that's fine. I can I can chat talking through. Anyway, he sends me the link of the property, and it's this off the plan in Brisbane. It's like a four bed townhouse, and this thing looks like going on holidays in uh, in Bali or you know the Mediterranean. It's got the pool and the, the chairs around, and um, anyway, he gives me a bit of a backstory, and it's a, another planner had actually referred. So this client's gone to a broker. He lives in Singapore, so he's gone to the broker in Singapore. The Singapore has referred him to a planner here that's got a partnership with a developer. Uh, and I, so I called the, the guy up and I was like, in a chat, I said, so, and I just uh, let him say, what's happening? What are you up to? What are you thinking about? And he goes, oh, have you looked at the property? I said, yeah, we'll go to that a bit later. Like, what's made you make this decision? And he's gone from potentially buying a house in the Northern Beaches to, this is all too hard, I keep missing out. Um, he was on the right path. He's going to move back in five years. Um, he was on the right path. He can afford it to met this sort of developer. And he's like, well, why don't you buy two? Um, you can get two, 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 two in Brisbane for the same. Uh, and Brisbane's going to go up 40% in the next three years. Oh, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And Sydney's overrun. Um, and you know, you know, yeah. he's never got any growth in it ever, ever again. Uh, <laughs> and so it was all these sort of, and he just rattled it all off basically with the sales pitch. And we, we unwound it all. And, um, I said to him, look, just type this into Brisbane now. Like you're, you're trying to buy for a million dollars, try these suburbs, right? Um, look at these houses that you could be buying for the same purchase price as that apartment. Like, what do you think an aspirational family would want? Like, do you think they would want to live in this house or would live in that townhouse for the same price? And it was just like slapped him in the face because he was like, well, actually, yeah, why, why wouldn't you want to live right near the river in this beautiful old Queenslander for a million dollars rather than this sort of new townhouse, you know, that's uh, got a big fancy pool that you wouldn't want to use because it's not private, right? So, um, and, and 10 years so from now, it's going to look tired and run down. Exactly. And let's face it, who's going to really look after that garden like that if, if it's all tenanted? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. not going to have anyone in the owner's corporation going, it has to be looked after. It's just not going to be like that. Oh, well, the garden's God. never going to look like that, is it? It's a render. <laughs> and marketing so, speed. So, like, now, there's yeah, no the, uh, development to build that garden. We're going to give you a couple yeah. of 680s instead. <laughs> yeah. I've got a good friend who does these renders for these properties and videos. Uh, and you should see it, but every year, they get better, right? They're just 
like now you can put the VR on and experience it, um, and they just never look anything like what they do on the <laughs> renders. Um, so it's it's a it's a funny space. Uh, <laughs> oh dear. On that note, thank you so much, Paul, for joining us today. Um, we'll put the link in the show notes uh, to your book, um, Financial Autonomy. And obviously anybody's interested in reading that, I mean, the other, just so you can quickly say the three ways that people can gain financial autonomy, you better quickly say it now. Investing in stocks, investing in property or becoming self-employed. All right. So if you want to know more about one, two or three of those ways, you probably should read the book. <laughs> Thank you so much. for your time. Thanks guys. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Paul. I really enjoyed the cap. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... Well, we talked about, I mean, obviously Paul's Dumbo was about uh, off-the-plan properties, and I always think that's mm. interesting because I'm not sure he knew our thoughts on that. But I was talking to a client the other day, and they're, they're looking at buying an apartment which is about five years old in an area where there's quite a lot of new stuff being built side by side. Now, this is not one huge complex where it's all the same developer. This is actually quite a big sort of infill land release where there's been a number of mm. different developers. And so therefore there's a level of diversity, even though it's all new, there's still a level of diversity because you've got different architects, different sort of build materials, different quality, different designs, right? And so that, you know, they were just telling me their story about how they've been looking at these apartments and have they've been, and I said, so how are you working out what you want to pay for it? And they said, oh, well, we've been looking at the new stuff because we haven't been able to find existing stock, so five-year stock that compares, you know. So we've been going and looking at the stuff that's finished and it's for sale, but it's brand new. And this this compares so much better. It's bigger, it's better finished, it's got a nicer outlook, it's got all these pros, you know, that these new stuff do, doesn't have. So I had to have a conversation with them around their, their comparison was sort of out because what they need to be doing is looking at how scarce is that, that actual apartment they're looking at versus everything that's existing that's a similar age. And so they need to be looking at recent sales rather than what's currently on the market. So, um, so we had a conversation around that, but I also thought it was really interesting because I said the reality is that most buyers that are buying brand new are not looking at the apartment that you're looking at because most buyers that are, you know, being, buying brand new are heavily marketed to and heavily influenced by the first home buyer grants. And if they are an investor, they're heavily influenced by negative gearing. And so therefore, there's no incentive for them whatsoever to buy the five-year-old apartment. And even though the five-year-old apartment might be better, bigger, better finished, better outlook, got a terrace, everything, um, you, will, you should see that there are less buyers for that five-year-old apartment. Now, if it gets highly competitive, though, it speaks to being actually a quality, potentially a quality asset in amongst all of that new development if it really is scarce. And so that's, just, that's the thing that I was encouraging them to look at. But I just thought that, that drawing that distinction between there's so much better value, so much, you know, there's better stock opportunities potentially out there in properties that may be five years old. If you are only looking at brand new, if you are, you know, and I guess if you listen to this podcast, you're probably not anyway. But if you are only looking at brand new because you're thinking about negative gearing or because you're thinking about getting those government incentives, and of course, the new build um, incentive has actually just been increased or the, the, the time period, the federal government has just increased it. So if that's what you're looking at, 
um, you won't be looking at the existing stock. You have no idea that a bigger one with a better terrace and a better view and better finishes is even available even in a similar price point. You'll have no idea because you're looking in a silo. So that's just the tip. If, you, if, if you've got this far in the episode, if you've got this far in the podcast and you haven't had been warned <laughs> off buying brand new or um, off the plan, then go and look at what else is existing because you might be very surprised at the value. Yeah, and I'd probably say keep then swap suburbs. Um, yes. You know, I, I just think you're still fishing in the wrong pond. You may have got a, a better fish, but you still ultimately that pond's going to get more fish in it. Basically, if you want to yeah. keep going, the, the analogy, um, you know, if you're in an area where there, I know you said this is potentially an infill area, so it might have a cap on supply, but yeah. it's probably, uh, they, there's no reason they can't expand that lymph, uh, that that area. You know, you can see in well, parts can. of Sydney, they'll say, well, if they um, if it's an infill area because it's basically a rezoning of industrial sites, there there is a there is a finite border to that in these areas. Yeah, I have seen in some areas like I um remember my pa was quite unwell in Melbourne actually. He was at Box Hill Hospital in Melbourne and um I was like, Oh yeah, I haven't really spent much time in this part of the world before and you know, I had to go there quite a lot and every you could actually see there was houses um on the in streets and apartment blocks going up over the back fence, you know. Mm. So this area was, and these are nice-looking houses, but um, how the hell is that getting approved? And because there's a, you know, that, that sort of high-density area is spreading into areas where you didn't think it was possible. And, you know, I, I think with this Sydney sort of rowing, even you, you wouldn't want to be too close to any of these sort of um, spots because it doesn't take much for them. Just to say, you know what, housing affordability is a bit of an issue. We need to create supply. We make more money off that anyway. Who cares about those house owners? Let's just, you know, expand the borders a bit. Um, now, yeah. it could be good for those householders because they could sell to a developer, but um, you don't want to be buying apartments. I also argue that COVID uh, and the building issues, consumers are probably going to demand a better product. And they might not be there today, but in 10 years' time, I, I do feel the builders are going to have to up their game. And a lot of new apartments are going to be better than the apartments built today. And so then you've got to be, you know, if you're buying in that area, you know, you can't potentially just always leverage off the thing to say that my apartment's better than new stuff because a lot of the new stuff may come out that is actually pretty good compared to yours in that area. And, um, so I just say avoid those areas that are building anything okay. new. Um, and if they are building anything new... There's, there's, there, I actually collected some news articles some years back of exactly that sort of example you're talking about in Box Hill and there was um, a house, I think it was in Cogra and it was an old man, he was probably in his 80s or 90s and he was, it was a picture of him out in his backyard under his hill's hoist and, you know, one side of him was like an eight-storey apartment building at the back over the back fence was an eight-story apartment building and on the other side yeah. he was because he'd refused to sell and he was basically oh yeah this is my castle and another one a classic example was um and and, and they failed to account for the stress that that could cause and even just living in in the middle of building sites for so long and, and so it's like this sort of it's, it's sad because they've sort of been bullied out of their home of 60 years or something but at the same time it's like Really, the, the alternative is worse for you. And then, then another one was a house in Lewisham. It's a semi-detached, so a semi, and the other half of the semi had been demolished and a five-storey apartment building built there. And it was the <laughs> oddest-looking thing I've seen. It. I've driven past it. Five-storey, yeah. quite a skinny, ugly-looking, not very nice. Obviously, it's got a half of a semi stuck on the side of it. Oh, dear. Yeah. I hope he's on the north side because if he's on the south side, then um, 
you know, it's not going to be nice to live in, right? No sun um, for ever. Um, ever. Yeah, it's funny. You get all those funny things on the internet where you get all these houses that didn't sell. There's an interesting one on George Street at the moment where, um, you know, you've got new vineyard going up. You, I think it's 275 George is another nice new building. And you've got the crazy John's building um, in the middle there. And I just think it's a skinny building. It's ugly. It's like it's right around all this other development. Surely he would have had the door knocked on um, to sell it. And then you can see that they've tried to sell it, um, you know, over this boom and they haven't been able to sell it from what I remember. Yeah, exactly. Because then if you've got like your house on a 600 square metre block of land, you need much bigger than 600 square metres to build an appropriate, to build a, a, an apartment building. Yeah. And, that, and that's what is surrounding. Then no one's going to want to buy a house and live there. Maybe it'd become a doctor's surgery or something. I mean, it's, you know, that's sort of <laughs> it's got very, very limited use. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You've gone from a potentially a, a good offer and a, you know, to take the money to a, an E property that no one ever is potentially going to buy uh, or no bank would want to lend on if they found out as well. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's a good uh, elephant rider boot camp. <laughs> Dumbo rolled in. <laughs> Please join us for our next episode. We're joined by urban designer... Bernard Gallagher and we're talking about the impact of living in a pandemic and the resultant work from home uh, movement and what that is going to have on urban planning. What will turn out to be temporary changes versus structural changes? What's happening to our transport network? Is peak hour a thing of the past? Retail space, hotel space, commercial space and also the way in which we're, we're living and the rise of the two-hour commute. All these things are being discussed and you know really if you in terms of impact on property prices is very important so please tune in if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in sydney's inner west eastern suburbs or north shore my team and i can help you buy without regrets reach out via my website gooddeeds.com.au if you're looking to buy your first home thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in australia my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly get the finance right reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. If you're a first-home buyer and you don't want to miss a step with this most important purchase, join me on Wednesday nights at 7.30pm Sydney time on the Home Buyer Academy Facebook page for live Q&A. Check out the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. Every month, my team hosts a webinar on what we are seeing at the banks, the best rates, changing policy and their service. We also share the latest insights we hear and read that are impacting the property market direction. Check out wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.